This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is the bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. My sponsors for season three of One for the Road are the amazing Rock Sober, a brand established in 2017 and led by brothers Sean and Lee, who are both in recovery and on a shared mission to inspire and support recovering addicts worldwide. Injecting rock and roll into sobriety, Rock Sober offers merchandise and accessories to inspire and empower its community of sober badasses. The boys have recently launched a new range of alcohol-free beers which are taking the market by storm. Every beer purchased will help Rock Sober on their mission to support and inspire more people in recovery. Their message is clear, you don't need alcohol to have a good time. So let's all rock sober and remember the good times with Rock Sober AF Drinks. My guest today on One for the Road is an absolute legend of a man. He is an ex-Special Forces soldier, a TV star on SAS Who Dares Wins, and now he has written several amazing books. It gives me great pleasure to introduce to you the wonderful Ollie Ollerton. Well, Mr. Ollerton, welcome to my show, One for the Road. How the devil are you, sir? I am bloody amazing. It's a pleasure to be on here, mate. We connected um, a while ago, actually. Well, it was a few months ago, actually, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. A few months? Yeah. Um, yeah, so um, it's, it's an absolute pleasure to finally uh, to make the date. So it's nice to have a date with you, Dave. <laughs> An on-air date, and you're looking very dapper at the moment. Thank you. I've got my rock sober t-shirt on. I'm just a bit chilly, so I'll put the put the uh, top on. But I'm representing there as well. Rock. Sober. Yeah. Well, if you don't mind, I might take mine off because I'm boiling. So if you don't mind me sitting here with nothing on, it's fine. Hey, let's both do it. <laughs> <laughs> 
So listen, Ollie, um, I know a bit of your story, but I'd love to wind it back to the beginning of which I normally do, because I do believe that the childhood does represent our journey. So what is your earliest memory that happened to you uh, as a child? Yeah, I mean, a massive, uh, massive um, sort of um, m- a massive uh milestone if you want to call it a milestone and it's really the probably the only time I can remember I've talked about this a lot and I do talk about it a lot because it's my story and it's so uh you know childhood childhood trauma is so deep set and it um you know it's not until you actually realize and you know hindsight's a wonderful thing but it didn't win any wars but you know on reflection it makes me realize how that event 10 years old when i got attacked by a chimpanzee at the circus how much of an influence that's had on my life and some good but a lot of bad and if um if i'll go back to that you know for those that haven't heard the story but um you know i was 10 years old burton on trent beautiful hot summer's day knock on the door um my brother's best mate wanted to know if we went wanted to go swimming Mum was absolutely elated to get us out of the house, um, and off we went to the swim bus. And um, as we came down the 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 road, got to the bridge that crossed the River Trent, Burton on Trent, and then we saw the big top was in town. It was like a ten year old kid, you know what I mean? That's exciting. That is really exciting, you know. So the this the whole idea of swimming went out the uh, you know out of our minds and before we knew it, we were running down to the circus got down there someone was there and said look can we have a look around it was 1980 there was no health and safety you know what i mean you could you could wander around a wild animal park <laughs> with, with no supervision it's crazy isn't it yeah it is mad it is mad um and that for me you know as we said can we have a look around he said look we're just setting up and then I went into the big top with my brother and his best mate, and there was all kinds of things that you'd expect to see in the circus elephants and the likes. Nothing that really excited me that much. And then I was drawn to this other, the other side where there was a crack in it, or like a light coming through a, a, a seam in the uh, in the in the canvas, which was clearly a canvas door. Um, and as I got over there, I pulled it to one side. The sun hit me straight in the eyes and immediately blurred my vision but when my vision cleared I saw something in front of me that was absolutely more amazing than the big top itself and that was a baby chimp Mm. and I say that because I was absolutely addicted to Tarzan when I was a kid you know you can remember the old Johnny Wiseman you know absolutely you know I mean and I think I think I'd watched it that day and like so sat in front of me was the little piece of Hollywood yeah that was Cheetah you know I mean I was brought up with cats and dogs but there I was staring at this chimp yeah and i was drawn to it and and all of a sudden i was on my own but i didn't care you know i was in this like then this open expanse beautiful blue skies beautiful day and i was making my way towards the chimp got above it and i wasn't much taller than it i was only only 10 it was only a baby chimp like i say it looked up at me uh and it sounds weird but it was almost like it was this like laser beam connection Mm. these beautiful brown eyes and i was like wow this is just incredible and then it started, it went down to the floor, it started picking up food and passing me food. And I thought, I'm not having that, it's disgusting. But I didn't want to break that moment. It was unbelievable. Now I am like this baby David Attenborough, you know, connecting with this <laughs> and, and nothing else mattered in the world at that moment in time. And the, the, the time, it was timeless. This chimp's passing me food, I'm taking it, I'm sort of sliding it down my face, throwing it over my shoulder. And that moment seemed to last forever. Like I say, it was timeless. 
but the serenity of that moment was broken like a fighter jet cutting through the sky as I heard the roar and a roar that I'll never forget, never forget that. And that was obviously mummy or daddy that was not very happy. All I saw, you know, in the shadows behind under a trailer, there was some movement. And, um, and that movement very quickly turned into what was clearly mummy or daddy. It's about probably 50, listen, I didn't get a chance to fucking weigh it, but it was big. <laughs> it was big. It was big. Yeah. It was big. And this thing's like a Mac 10 coming towards me. It wants, you know, obviously sees me as a threat, wants to kill me, you know, yeah. and uh, protect its young. And, you know, and I'm just like, my feet are glued to the floor. I couldn't move. I was like a deer in the headlights. And at that moment, I thought, I better get out of here. This thing pounced. And it must have been 20 foot through the air. And all of a sudden, the blue sky turned to black. And this thing landed straight on my chest, pinned me to the floor. And, um, you know, I can remember that first fist coming down, mate. You know, I was pinned to the floor, that first fist, I was lay there. And it just knocked everything out of me. I can still remember that. You know, it's like bang, and that, that was the first of many. It was like a drummer in a rock band just going absolutely mental on me, shrieking and everything. And and then it started to bite me. Um, you know, it's coming down, trying to get me, and I was just in, in survival mode, trying to protect myself. Um, and I can remember looking, I can remember chunks, I can remember my arm being pulled, and it was like chunks being, you know, pulled out of my arm. And there was blood starting to fly about. And I can remember looking up, and you've got to imagine this is happening so quickly. Yeah, so seconds. All, yeah, not even that, mate. It's like happening so fast. But I can remember looking in at that chimp, blood in its teeth. And I thought, I'm going to die. I'm going to die if I don't do something. But, you know, to actually have the balls to take it up a notch. You know what I mean? It, you know, but I didn't really think about it. It was all instinct from that yeah. point. You know, I managed to dislodge the chimp, gave me a couple of inches just to get my knee up to my chest. And I smashed as hard as possible into the chimp's chest, managed to knock it to the floor. And that gave me a few, uh, a few seconds just to get away. And I managed to, to crawl back and this chimp gets onto its feet and it's coming for the final attack. And then honestly, mate, it was a hair away from my nose when the chain caught it oh just before it got to me. And uh, then I stood up, get away from there. And I'm like, absolutely. The place erupts, you know, I'm, I'm a mess. There's blood everywhere. And, um, you know, the story goes on and on. Anyone that's read the books will understand the story goes on. It's quite a mad story, and we haven't got time to talk about the whole story on here today, but nearly lost my arm to gangrene, and it, it went on and on. But, you know, the reason I, I've reflected on that so much, but the reason my company's called Breakpoint is because that was my first breakpoint. Breakpoint yeah. is the moment you decide to, to step into the short-term discomfort for long-term gain, and we are wired exactly the opposite. Yeah. Humans are wired the other way. Short-term comfort, which leads to long-term pain. And we can relate a lot of that to, you know, when you when you start thinking about alcohol. Yeah. That fits right into that bracket, doesn't it? So really for me, that was the moment that I had to, you know, what what was that gain for me that day? That was that was taking a fight to a chimp. You know what I mean? That was that was the short-term pain, uh, short-term discomfort. Long-term yeah. gain was the fact I'm still here today. And also the fact that 10 years old, it taught me that regardless of what circumstance or situation you're in, we've all got choices. And um, it was some important lessons for me. I had no idea of the lessons or the, uh, how, would, how that would change the trajectory. Tra trajectory. I don't know why I actually take on words like that on podcasts. <laughs> I can say it when I'm on my own. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it changed the sort of uh, direction of my life. And yeah. um, I had no idea at that time how much of an influence 
childhood trauma has. You know, I never dealt with that situation until I was 43 years old. Oh, sorry, not 43, 49 years old, yeah. When I went away to Costa Rica and and to an ayahuasca retreat and really uh, went back there in time and uh, and dealt with that but there's a lot happened between that situation and, and me going to to see ayahuasca you know that was my first break point it would not be my last mm. by any stretch of the imagination you know after that i and, and that's one thing i'll say about trauma of any in any respect at any time in your life you know we have a, a an innate self-preservation system i think is the best way to refer to it that when we go through some something extreme we lock away the intimate trauma and that is to help us to get over the short term. You know, it's, it's there to help us get over the short term, which is good. But the thing is, it's not meant to be locked away and left. Mm. You know what I mean? And that made me realize, you know, 49 years old, then dealing with that. And there was certain things in my life that was pushing me back. You know, there's things, it happened so long ago, 10 years old. Mm. You know, and there was certain things in my life pushing, always pushing me back to the chin. You know, there's unfinished mm. business there. And it wasn't until I actually unlocked that intimate trauma, went back in there. Uh, that really started to, to to unravel that and got peace with this with the whole. You know what? I I got this analogy in my head of my own childhood trauma, right? And and I visualised this old suitcase, like one you would get like eighty years ago of old buckles and that in the loft, and it's tucked right into the corner and it's covered in cobwebs, right? And it's been there all the years that I've blocked it out through drinking. As soon as I stopped, I realised that I had to investigate that because there were some issues there that I'd been blocking out. Mm. And, and it took me a long time. You know, like, it was almost like I've got to drag it halfway to the loft hatch and then I've got to leave it. And then I've got to pull it nearer and then I've got to open the lid and shut the lid. Because yeah. I don't believe in the first few months or a couple of years that you're ready to deal with it. You know, too much has happened since then, but... One day, I call it the second phase of sobriety, that yeah. you feel strong enough in yourself to, to investigate it. And it's important because, it, you know, we call it emotional blunting when we drink. Yeah. And it is because you blunt out. So, and, it, you, you know, yours is a real story. Yeah. But for some, it could be like they're ignored as a child or they're not shown emotional engagement. You know, or they're told to go to their room and say nothing for, for a day. What You know, if for, for the individual, it's relative. 100%. And, and people don't actually, you know, we are um, a, a product of the child we once were. You know, in our, in our adult life, we are a product of, of our childhood experience. Because, you know, up, especially up until the age of about seven, you are an absolute sponge. And it doesn't stop at seven, but up until the age of seven, that is where you sponge you learn everything you know what i mean and that is deep set from that moment so it's really the people you have around you and the influences whether that's parents brothers whatever you know can have a massive impact on your life that, you know what it even goes out like of freud you say about the attachment theory and even breastfeeding yeah that you know, can go back to when you were a baby Mm. anyway we could talk about that for hours so let's move on so how yeah. old were you you joined the marines when you were 18 right yeah but before that mate you know that after that after i got that after that incident with the chimp i was like an absolute lunatic lunatic right. no, that really did i i i was just i was chasing danger everywhere and the reason i'm telling you this is because that's it, it was a natural pathway then to to the royal marines right 
you know, and it was like I was just chasing danger. Nearly, I, I ended up in remand home for a certain for a short period of time before I went to court for stuff I was getting involved with. And you know, I came from a, um, you know, a good a good. I wouldn't say we were we were like we were, we were kind of well off. You know what I mean? So it wasn't the norm for for someone of coming from that environment to be in trouble with the law as much as I was, but I was just changed. I needed to be stopped. And it wasn't until I actually got stopped and before, you know, I went to that remand home that that was a big wake up call for me. Um, and I had all this spent energy, uh, uns you know, unspent energy that needed directing me the right way. And my mum, bless her, you know, my, my father left home at uh, when I was about 13. And um, her life was falling apart, you know, financially and emotionally. And, um, you know, I never forget that from my mum. You know, she, she still, I was her number one focus, regardless of herself. You know, she was totally gave me everything. I'll never, I'll never forget that. Uh, but then, you know, I just at 14 years old, I can remember I was, I was academic, you know what I mean? Up to a point and then I got to a point. I was like, what is the point? Mm. I couldn't be doing with it anymore. I just didn't see how... Half the stuff we were learning was relative to anything. So at 14, yeah, I can remember, I can remember the moment standing up in the middle of my maths class after being told that I wasn't concentrating, saying, I don't care what you say, you know, I'm I'm joining the Royal Marines. And uh, my maths teacher at that point said, you know, <laughs> Ollerton, you have not got the discipline to join the Royal Marines. Well, being the Royal Marines, he was right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I had to prove him wrong anyway. Yeah. So anyway, I ended up, uh, I ended up. I wanted to join at 16, couldn't join at 16, and managed to get in at 18 um, because I had some criminal convictions. I didn't want them to go on my record. I was advised not to go in at 16 because I'd have to carry them with me. Uh, so I ended up going in at 18 and, and, and then, yeah, past Royal Marines training, the hardest training I thought there was, little did I know. Yeah. Um, and then went off to uh, Northern Ireland and then got recalled on leave after Northern Ireland to go out to Desert Storm. But... You know, I was so disappointed with the military and it just makes me, I now look again, reflection, I now just wonder, you know, purpose. It's not something I understood, definitely not as a teenager. It's not something I understood till fairly recently. And I, I look back and, you know, I look at all the things that sort of were thrown in my path to join up and even to, into the special forces. And I now start to understand that I don't feel it was my purpose to join the military. You know, we're born into this world as amazing, creative human beings. We then go to these programming centers that knock all kind of creativity out of us. And then we're expected to fit into some box with a label on it. Mm. And, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people out there think they're damaged. It's the system that's damaged, not the people. Mm. You know what I mean? Because we're not meant to be boxed and, you know, with a label, you know, you must fit. Into I thought for me, I thought it's the military. You have, you know, you've got to be in the military, and I was so wrong. I was so wrong. I, I don't regret joining. It was a massive. Uh, I was humbled to then be part of the special forces, but um, you know, I've no regrets on that. But you know, when I now understand about purpose, you've got to listen to the universe, as far as I'm concerned, because once you're in tune with that, um, it is the best compass in the world. Uh, but anyway, listen, I'm sort of generalising when I should be pinpointing uh, what happened. So. I came back from Northern Ireland, went off to Iraq, and then from that I was going to leave, and then I was convinced not to leave and, and to go for Special Forces by my commanding officer. And um, yeah, I after after two years on selection, it was almost two years, 
um, I, I, I passed the second course. There was a bit of an altercation with a, a Welsh farmer on the first course <laughs> on the escape and evasion, which again is another long story. Um, and then got into the special forces. And then when I joined there, mate, I was still not content. Something mm. was missing. Mm. Every boy's dream. I was one of five out of 280 that started that course. And I should have been absolutely over the moon, but something just wasn't there. And it was that, it was that purpose, mate. It was that sense, you know, I wasn't, it was, I wasn't settled in, or I didn't feel grounded. Mm. I didn't know what it was. And I, I started to blame myself then. I think that's what we do, don't we? Mm. So when it when things don't fit on our external world we start to blame our internal world yeah where we think it says we think we're the ones that are broken but it's not and anyway i came out so did total 11 years military service six years of work uh, spent in the special forces um and then ended up out in iraq i said they'd never go back to a war zone and they the statue of Saddam fell down in 2003. I was out there at that time. There was loads of money to be made and I was drawn out there. And that's really, for me, you know, when we talk about alcohol, I was brought up in Burton-on-Trent as a kid, you know, that's where I lived. That's where, and I think my whole family was paid in beer. You know, there was always drink in the house. So I started my drinking at quite an early age, 14. I know that's to some people that's quite late, but I see it's quite early. Mm. Um, and um, it didn't stop from there. And, you know, I then used to, I, I used to drink a lot, you know, in the, in, this, in the military in general, it's about binging. You binge drink, you work hard, you go away, you do work, you come back and then you, you go on a sesh, you know what I mean? And it's always binge drinking. And, and then when I actually left the uh, special forces, that's kind of, okay. it's acceptable, that kind of behavior in the, in the military, but, I then took that military behavior into the outside world thinking that would just be acceptable. Mm. And um, it wasn't mate, but I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't care what anyone else thought, you know, even I was out in Iraq, I worked out there for, for about six years um, in some of the dodgiest situations that I'll ever remember, you know, no backup, no support. And I lived every day like it was its last, you know, and that's when the drinking really started big time. How, how bad did it get? Uh, when I say it's bad, I mean, I talk about drinking as a problem when, you know, it wasn't a case that I was waking up in the morning and reaching for the bottle. It was like every moment that I wasn't working. Yeah. I just wanted to drink. Yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah. And it's like there was nothing else that mattered to me. My whole world was shaped. It was almost like my work was only there to basically facilitate my drinking. You know what I mean? That was the whole for me. There was no career. There was just there was just fun credits to be earned so that they could go and get smashed. And that's what my life was all about at that stage. I didn't care about work. I just cared about earning money to go out and get drunk. And, you know, I've been to some amazing places all over the world. And I could probably tell you what the local bar looks like and nothing about the, the whole place. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. it was that was the priority. Yeah. And now I look back and remember, you know, I, I, I think, you know, in a, in a mind of clarity, and you, you can relate to this, Dave, you think a lot, don't you? You reflect a lot, you think a lot. And, um, you know, I, I was just, I now realized that all during that time I was renting a personality. You know what I mean? It was about personality rental. It was like, oh, I haven't heard that, but I can really feel that. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, I'm not, you know, I've thought about that a lot and that's exactly what it was. You know, I wasn't me in a relationship, you know, in, in sort of social circles. Yeah. I had a drink. It's like two people, isn't it? It, it was, yeah. and 
I spoke to someone yesterday and, and they said, you know, it's like you roll the dice and you don't know what you're going to come up with each time you go out. And I could be really charming. I could be nice, but I could just lose it like that. And I, no one ever knew who I would be, especially myself. Yeah, no, exactly, mate. It was like, yeah, and you, you, all the time you are drinking, you just, you're not yourself, are you? You're no. Um, and you don't know who you are until <laughs> you come out of it. Come out of it. So, um, um yeah, no, it's, I mean, talking about, like, when I look at Iraq as well, it's like, because, you know, we, we were getting into some really dodgy situations more often than not. And like I say, you didn't have the backup. So it created a really unhealthy character trait of just not giving a shit, you know, about any kind of consequence. Mm. And you would live every day like it was your last. So that, for me, was like drinking every night you know, and it'd be, it wouldn't be one or two drinks. It'd be till blackout. Mm. Um, you know, I'm sleeping with a, with a pistol under my pillow. I've got weapons hidden all around the bedroom, you know, because we were living out in the red zone, not the green zone, you know, so and our villa was getting attacked fairly often, all the villas down that street. Uh, we lived right amongst the militia, everything, you know, it's like, and you just didn't know, mate, you went to bed at night, no, not knowing if you were going to be there the next day. And I was out there, I was, you know, you're in that alpha male world trying to fit in. And, you know, next thing, I mean, I was, I was drinking heavily. I was taking steroids. I was hammering. And then to, to combat that sort of anxiety the following day, I was then started on the Valium, you know, and from the outside looking in, you've got this big smile and Ollie's a fun guy. And, you know, he's the kind of guy you want at the party, but you know, he's such a, such a lie, such a lie behind that. You know, when I locked that door at night, there was, a, mm. that, was that was a different person. And that, that was the true me, um, you know, in absolute despair. So, and then I can remember like, one, I'll tell you a couple of incidents, you know, when I look back and I think, how did I survive Iraq, let alone other situations? And it's um, on a Friday, you have, you have the day off on the Friday in the Middle East, Thursday night is uh, party time and everyone would party, you know what I mean? It's like every Friday, Thursday we would get hammered. So you basically get all your, you know, all your weapons, everything, you'd make, make your way to someone's villa where there'd be a party. Mm. probably one of Saddam Hussein's um, old villas or his henchmen um, and then we'd have these big parties get hammered and I can remember one time it was like once you're there it's it's like lockdown you don't you don't leave there until the morning until you're sober because um, it's just far too dangerous and I can remember now you know I had like a, an armored Mercedes it's again one of Saddam's old cars you know we we got a fleet of them we used to rent them out um we had a rental hire car company out in uh, in Baghdad it was hilarious and I had one of his uh his Mercedes you know powerful armored Mercedes and I was like I went there in that so on my own I think and then I decided like one two in the morning I thought I couldn't be bothered getting my head down there I was absolutely steaming and I left there two o'clock in the morning which was like you just do not do that a sober mind would not do that um, and I can remember driving. I was that drunk. I got lost in the city. Oh, now, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got my body armor on. I've got my weapon. I don't even think I was wearing my body armor. I think it was just in the car. I mean, the car was body armor. <laughs> um, I had my AK-47 in there and um, I got lost in the city. You know, if the militia had found me, they'd off with the head. If the Americans had probably come up against me. They'd probably just shot me thinking I was militia or something. And it was, I had no idea on me, no nothing. I can remember I had to, I was that drunk. I was like, shit, I, I started panicking. I was like thinking, fuck, I need, to, I need to get some to some high ground just so I can have a look at the city. And because I could tell by the lights and stuff in the city where I was. I managed to get to this high point. I stopped on the top of this bridge. And I can remember I opened the door 
and uh, I fell out of the car and I fell on the floor followed by my AK-47 that fell on top of me and I was just laying on the floor and that's when I thought holy what the fuck are you doing mate what yeah, are yeah. you doing I stood up and looked and I, I, I knew the direction I wasn't driving the car I was aiming it and uh, managed to get back in the car and managed to point the vehicle in the right direction until I managed to then start recognising a few streets and managed to get back to the villa. So that's one time. And then another time, it was like we got intelligence reports, do not leave the villas, there's a lot of militia activity, do not leave. And I can remember I was stuck in the villa and I was like, I'm always against being told what to do. It's, yeah. I don't know if it's... I think it's a good thing, but it depends <laughs> on the situation. But, um, you know, and then I was like, no one tells me what to do. So um, I've got my bodyguard team, which were all local Iraqis, three-car three convoy. I said, I want to go out and buy a rug. Mansour, Mansour district in Iraq, like, they were like, do, Mr. Ollie, do not go out. You cannot go out. And I'm like, I want a rug. I'm going out. So next thing, I mean, Mansour district, they're all edgy because they know it's really dodgy. I'm crawling into the shop. I've got my body armor on, crawling in my weapon, everything. I'm in the shop on the floor giving this bloke a load of money for this silk Iranian rug. And then one of the BG team comes flying in. He's like, Mr. Ollie, we've got to go. We've got to go. The militia, they're coming. And I could hear the gunfire outside. And I just got one of the guys grabbed the rug and I just bolted out of this shop, dived into the back of the car. And we started like driving off. I mean, the streets are like congested massively. And like the, a bullet came straight through the back window. And then we managed to just get out of there. But, you know, that's just another situation where I just think, what, what an absolute idiot. You know, I was knocking on death's door on a regular basis, and luckily it never opened. So, mate, I'm in the process of writing a book, right? Mm. I'm going to throw it in a bin after that. <laughs> <laughs> How could I keep up with that? I mean, that is just astounding. Well, but I, I can know. actually relate to that. Yeah. The all three go off, fuck it. I can really, because one night I was so drunk that I tried to find a load of tablets to just do it. Like mm -hmm. it was that almost lunatic brain that I had of when I was that blackout drunk that yeah. I didn't care whether I lived or died. And that's on a much smaller scale to what you did by yeah. going out. But it goes to show how different you, you are under the influence, doesn't it? Scary. 100%, mate. You know, I didn't, I have, I didn't, you know, I, I've said this a lot and, you know, until I was about 43, which is, you know, the turning point for me, you know, so let, let's take that sort of um, on its path a bit more. But, you know, after leaving Iraq, you know, I had to leave Iraq because my mental health was spiraling out of control. I was getting, you know, and just drinking. I just, I was, it was not like I was getting drunk and stuff and drinking and knowing that, uh, you know, not, not thinking about it. I was so conscious of it. No, I knew I had a problem. Mm. I knew I had this problem. Um, and then I left Iraq, you know, because I was just so, I just, I, you know, it was just coming to a close anyway. And, you know, I just knew my mental health was spiraling out of control. Got over to Australia, where I was living at, living at the time. And, um, you know, and then started to get some stability in that. But the drinking was always apparent. But, um, you know, it, it was always there. But, but you know, I, I, was, I wasn't in a war zone. And then I ended up getting on, um, hearing about something that was happening in Southeast Asia, rescuing kids from child prostitution, slavery, kids being sold into the skin trade. Next thing I'm out there, I was like, you know, I, I tried my bit of stability. It got me to sort of a bit of a plateau and I was like, nah, I need, I need danger. It wasn't, it wasn't a case of needing danger as much in that. It's just the fact that knowing that these kids were being sold into the skin trade and I could do something about it, um, I had to go over there. And mm -hmm. uh, 
I'll tell you what, mate, that was the most, that was like an epiphany for me because I didn't know what that was going to give me. And although, um, you know, I won't go into the story about it because, again, it's a long story, but rescuing those kids from the camps that were being held in was just, it was so humbling, so humbling. I was like, I felt so rewarded, if you want to call it. I felt so um, almost as if I finally found what I was looking for. Reflected mm. back on my military days, realized that discomfort, that unease I felt, all of a sudden I'd found it. And that was helping other people less fortunate. You know, I'd, found, I'd finally found or stumbled across my purpose. Mm. And that was helping other people. Um, I wasn't being paid for that. I used my own money to mount those operations. And then all of a sudden there was a massive political incident. We had to escape out of Thailand. The whole thing came crashing down. You know, and I took something from that, which was amazing. And that was how rewarding uh, the return on investment in helping others. Mm. That really was the blueprint for, for, although I didn't know it at that point, that was the blueprint for starting my company, Breakpoint, which is all about helping other people. Uh, mission statement is to create a globally identified brand recognized for the positive growth and development of others. Uh, and that was really the, the, that was the start of it, although I didn't know it at that point. Mm. Uh, but then I got back to Australia and I found something that was so amazing, mate. So seeing those kids walking down the street after they'd been rescued in a school uniform and a satchel, and you know, walking away from the orphanage, uh, it was just amazing. I'll never forget that. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, something I found I was so attached to, thought I'd be doing it for the rest of my life, collapsed overnight. And um, that's when it really, my, my life went out of control at that point. And that's when I was the person that was drinking whenever. You know what I mean? I was like, I was lost. I was so lost when I came back from there. I had no money to speak of. Um, I was in a real corrosive, horrible relationship. And, you know, I was, I was, it was at, at that point that I did start to think about suicide. You know, I, I kind of thought about it, but I really started to think about it. And I always say this, look, I don't know if I'd have ever, I never attempted it. I did think about it a lot, but the, the point I'm making about this is that if, you're even thinking about it. It's, you've already gone too far. You need, that is a turning point. You need to, to do something about it at that point if you start to think about it. But it's really hard for a lot of people. And I started, you know, when, when I looked at my sort of mental health journey, I, I wanted to, I was almost questioning myself why I deserve to have any kind of mental health issues. Now, just what the little bits I've told you from this podcast, I mean, it's quite apparent that I should have probably have some mental health issues but I was questioning myself mm. this is what we do don't we we will we're looking for what's the what's the bar what you yeah know, we're looking for a qualification yeah you know we've got to there's no checklist you know what I mean it's not it's not it's not owned by the military it's relative to the person and if you're below par yeah on a daily basis you need to do something about it you know a lot yeah. of time that is a message from the mind telling you change something needs to change yeah and 100%. That really, yeah that was it for me that was that point it was like i knew yeah. that if i was going to carry on that you know um for me hitting rock bottom was realization of how far i'd actually fallen it was that moment of clarity and all the confusion where you actually go holy shit yeah you're absolutely honest with yourself where you are because if you can't be honest with yourself and you you can't admit and be open to the fact that you're in in, in trouble you're never gonna you, you always got that smoke screen that yeah you always, you always use the drink don't you to um yeah and and do you know what uh, it's so prominent what you say there because that's why i hate the label alcoholic mm. because people say oh you're an alcoholic they label you as someone 
that has reached the bottom of the pile. Do you know what I mean? But I know women and men that have a couple of drinks a day or here and there, and it affects their life every single day. It affects their mental health or anxiety. So where do you draw the line on it? Do you know what I mean? And it is what you said then is so relative to each individual. Mm. Like you and me were really like that, that binge drinking blackout, don't remember what you've done from day to day, but you, there are other people that do, but yeah. it still affects them. Yeah, no, and I, I, I can, I, I think you're probably the same. I can relate to every, every part of the journey. You know, I've, I've, you know, I've, even when I've given up, well, you know, when, when I've given up and I've thought, well, I'll just, I can just have a couple. That to me, like when I talk about having a drinking problem, the drink is the problem. You know what I mean? And for me, if I, you know, now I've got such a mind of clarity and purpose and I do not want to infect it mm. with alcohol, with a chemical that's going to change that balance. Yeah. And I will, that for me is why I can't have one. I can't, you know, it's not, I, it's, for me, it's not, I can't have one because I'm so scared of like, I'll have a hundred. For me now, it's to the point that I know just having one drink affects the chemicals yeah chemical balance it causes an imbalance for me and my mindset of clarity changes me as a person in a heartbeat one drink changes me as a person and i haven't got the sense of purpose the sense of creativity everything i just find that alcohol is for me it's almost like a bloody control mechanism they want people to be Mm. want people to drink they want people to be you know get six pack every night on the way home from work and sit there in front of the tv be programmed by the TV and, and then just be an absolute robot, you know. But they create the fantasy. I was down in a tube station the other day and there's this perfect scenario on this advertising board mm-hmm. and it looked like uh, in Italy, some of the Amalfi Coast, everyone was dressed immaculately with their glass of martini and whatever and everyone was healthy looking and that's not reality at all. They create, and this is what I say to a lot of people, you've got to remind yourself of the real reality of Mm. what alcohol means to you. Not when people get cravings and triggers, it's like, oh, I could just have the one or two. Well, it's not. It's like, wind it on two or three hours when you're dribbling and talking crap and then going home shouting at your partner and waking up feeling like shit in the morning. Yeah. And that's, alcohol's absolutely everywhere. Um, And you're encouraged it's what, what you have to relax when you've got grief, have a stiff drink. Yeah. You no, know, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it is. And it's like these, you know, our lives are so polluted with it. Polluted. It's, it's, it's across, you know, every facet of life, isn't it? You know, and I, I really I like when I stopped, I, I can't, you know, for me, I came back from, you know, when I've had that turning point in my life, you know, it was, it was a slow journey and I was still drinking it, but I was like, extremely conscious of it but that little voice in my head was like you'll never give up yeah you, you may be able to do a lot of stuff but there's no way ollie ollerton is going to stop drinking you know and you you remember all your mates laughing at you you stop yeah you stop. what you yeah you know i mean it's there's no one out there there's no a thousand person audience it's just the voices in your head but you know for me i was like it was something that i thought i could never do and then I tried the whole management program, you know, like not drinking in, at the, uh, in the week and uh, just doing well, the weekend. That doesn't work. <laughs> no, well, you just drink a hell of a lot more at the weekend. Yeah. And then before I knew it, I was like, you know, it's, you know, when I was, I got a stable job in Australia working in oil and gas. And honestly, the weekends, Monday, uh, Saturday and um, 
Friday, Saturday and Sunday, Thursday as well, uh, we're all drinking. And before I knew it, I was like making excuses not to go to work on the Monday. I then end up like going down to the off license, getting a couple of bottles of wine and sitting in the house on a Monday. You know what I mean? And knowing that I'd be in trouble at work, people would start, you know, questioning what I was doing at work. Mm -hmm. And that went on and on and on. It was just like, it doesn't, it did not work. And it was only when I sort of came back, I came back from Australia. And it's quite amazing that, because I said I'd never come back to the UK. There was far too much uh, trauma back here. And I just, you know, there was a, you know, I, I, I'd been divorced and, you know, it, it just felt like there was too much trauma, but it was, I was really fighting against something that was calling me back. Something was calling me back. And I woke up at three o'clock in the morning on a Thursday morning and all that my contract and everything wasn't going right over in Australia, and rightly so, to be honest. I, um, and um, all of a sudden I heard this, my voice, a voice in my head just said, go back to the UK. And I was like, and instantly my ego was like, nah, you never go back there. Mm. Never go back there. Hate the UK, hate the UK. And then I pushed my ego to one side and just went, just embrace that thought. And as soon as I embraced it, it was like a gateway of emotions, positive emotions. As soon as I unlocked the gate, it just came flooding in. It was like, mm. bang, wow. It was like, you know, I'd been blocking it off for so long. Yeah. And it was like, as soon as I opened that door and allowed the door, they, it all came, and all, everything seemed so right. For no, out of two weeks, I got everything on Gumtree, sold a lot, and I was on a plane back to the UK with nothing, next to nothing. And uh, but one sole intention, and that was starting the company over in the UK, which was sort of based on special force, my special forces uh, experience, uh, but was really focused on helping others uh, and also engaging veterans to work for me that would give me give them that sense of brotherhood, camaraderie. Um, and and yeah, that was the sole intention to come back. And I had nothing. I didn't know how I was going to do it, anything. And that's when I came back, mate. And I. You know, I wanted to start this company. It was all about helping other people. But how can you do that when you come from a foundation that is absolutely fractured and broken? And, you know, there's a lot of people out there trying to help other people. And they're, mm. they're not, you know, they're, they're not in a good place. And, you know, they, they can be so uh, counterproductive. Mm. So what I did, you know, I knew that I couldn't go out there and be confident about helping other people unless I was 100% rock solid. Mm. that for me was i came back and put myself into a boot camp for three months self-isolation in a cottage down in cornwall and for that three months you know i really i turned off the mainstream media i've not turned it back on actually <laughs> <laughs> don't blame you um didn't engage any newspapers or anything i didn't want any distractions anything from the external world that would like interrupt the journey i was on it was i was so dedicated every day i was like mindset uh, mind body nutrition uh, exercise mindset stuff meditation you know and i was meditating and stuff like that thinking god what an idiot if anyone saw you now you would look like a proper idiot yeah you know, this stuff don't work you know all those voices in your head yeah, yeah anyway i just i just persevered and pushed through that short-term discomfort and before i knew it you know i was at the end of three months i didn't even recognize the person i was i was still drinking but I'd managed to like definitely I didn't drink in a week at all. There was a few weekends where I'd go off to London. You know, I was locked in this house, but I did go out uh, from time to time. But, um, you know, after the three months, I didn't recognize myself in a positive way. And all the time, mate, I would be sitting there and I was like engaging in stuff that I just knew, you know, just, you know, it's like visualization, goal setting, 
it was just, I didn't know whether it was going to work. I just had no idea, but it's all I had. I had no money. I had a borrowed credit card off my mum at 43 years old. I was living in a borrowed house and um, I just had no idea, but it's, I had nothing else, nothing else. And I used to visualize every day about me and Foxy, who's you know one of my best mates off the, off the show, I say, Esu Bears Wins. And I, I visualized every day, I went into this visualization meditation about me and Foxy being on a big stage, you know, talking to loads of people about our experiences and da, 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 and you know, using our special forces experience and training to, to really help people. And I used to visualize about that every day. And then at the end of that three months, I was I was there and you know, my family was starting to say, look, Matt, you know, maybe this whole thing with your company Breakpoint, maybe, you know, I'm not saying it can't happen, but, you know, you need to go and earn some money. Why don't you go back to a war zone? All these kind of messages. That's where you guys are meant to be. You know, you can make some good money there. But I knew that if I just did that, I'd get lost back in the system. I'd be too busy earning a living to do anything for myself. Mm. I was just so positive this was going to work. But because I was getting those kind of messages, especially from people you love, they're trying to protect you. They're not trying to stop you in your tracks. You know, I, I just, I did have that little seed of self-doubt. And then all of a sudden, at the end of that three months when I was having that, I then get a phone call from Foxy. who just said, mate, you know that idea you've had with Breakpoint? He said, would you consider doing that on TV? And I went, what are you on about? I thought he was down the pub trying to trap me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I, <laughs> I, thought was, I thought the next line was going to be, mate, come down a pub. I've got something to share with you. Yeah. And it wasn't. It was like he was there with the uh, with the production company. And oh. like honestly, that moment, I was out at the time. I can remember I was in the car with my now wife, and um, I think we'd gone to the swimming baths or something. I can remember getting that phone call just before we went in, and honestly, the hairs on the back of my neck yeah. were just like pinging up because I was like. Oh my God, you know, I've been visualizing a stage. Yeah. Foxy would be on. This was the biggest stage in the world, the TV. Yeah. And that was the platform from the company, you know, and that was just so amazing. I, you know, I thought that would be a one off. Um, and uh, it wasn't. It then evolved into what it is today. And now I'm, you know, I'm over in Australia doing the show. So it's been an amazing, amazing journey. And there's a lot of stuff between the, between the gaps of uh, some very inspirational stuff, but I'm so humbled to be in the position I am in now. Uh, but really for me, you know, I was still drinking up until like the second series, it was SAS Who Dares Wins. And I can remember the first series and I was like, we got drunk, hammered the night before we started filming. And I can remember that next day, I was, I was in a mess, I was a mess, it was horrible. It was horrible, mate. And I can remember thinking after that filming thought, I just didn't feel like I'd given the best I could give. And I said, next time I do this, if there is a next time, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to drink. So I said, right, eight weeks, no drinking. It was the most I'd ever done yeah. since I drinking. Eight weeks, don't drink. Um, and then, you know, get the filming out of the way. We were out in, in um, Ecuador, South America. Uh, and I did that. And I can remember, like, getting into that and the clarity, the sense of, like, that, that young energy that you used to have that getting up every day and feeling absolutely um, on, it. on it and uh, yeah. you know, excited about what the day is going to bring to you. Yeah. You know, you attack the day, the day never came to you. It was like, this is powerful. This is amazing. I got to the end of the eight weeks, we finished the filming and Foxy was like that, right, come on, let's get on it. It was the rap mm -hmm. party, you know, it's big party. And it was that, that was the moment, that was break point. That was a break point, right, where I sat there and instead of going, you know, muscle memory, yeah, let's get on it. Yeah. I took a pause in that moment and went, hold, 
just hold. And I went, Foxy, mate, I'm not going to bother. And he was, he was like, what? I said, mate, I just feel so good. I, I, I can't go, I can't contaminate this now. And that was it. That was it. That's, I stopped drinking. I stopped drinking. And it was like the best thing I ever did. And you know what? Forget the drink. Forget the drink. Combating that and controlling that meant I could do anything in life. Totally, mate. And that's what I say. If I can give up drinking, I can do anything I wish. And I always say now, I'm exactly where I'm meant to be now. This is mm-hmm. what I'm meant to do. Um, yeah. The irony is having this conversation with you, there's so many similarities, mm. but not, of course, the machine guns and all that. But yeah. the guy that's texted me on the 7th of January 2019, he his text said to me, how do you feel like joining me for three months to stop drinking alcohol, to see where you are in your health, your marriage, you know? Mm. And I, I laughed. It was like, I can't give up three days, let alone three months. But it kind of, that was my breaking point because it was, it was like a real epiphany and it, and it soaked in yeah. like one of those snow cones. Yeah. And by the end of the day, I, I pulled over and um, I thought, how would I? Be? how would my marriage be how would my health be and whatever and i texted him i said you in he said yes as, as soon as i saw him and this is irony as well he's a spitting image of foxy serious seriously people think it's him but he's obviously listening to this he's not as fit as foxy obviously but no he's literally and and that's the irony and, and when i saw him and i shook his hand that's the last I don't even remember my last drink the night before. I was obviously passed out on that. That was nearly three years ago now, and I've never touched a drop since because I thought, you know what you say about contaminating your brain? Mm. I thought, I've done that for 40 years now. I owe it to my brain, my mental health, me to never do that again now because mm. I've been repairing for all that time. I'll yeah. give you another thing, mate. The other day, I don't know why I did it because I hate the bloody things. I bought an energy drink. Yeah. Had that, and then I had a coffee, right? And I felt delirious after that, and I hated it yeah. for an hour or so. I wasn't with it, and I think a sky bloke come out. I was like, God, I must be acting like drunk or something because I'm not with it at all. And I, it's like, God, that, that really reminds me. I don't ever want to go back there again because I wasn't in control. I, I didn't feel clear oh. about things, you know? Yeah, it's 100%, and that's that's what I'm saying. You know, you don't realise that, you know, the that change, you know, once you have that clarity and that stability, as soon as you, I'm the same mate, you know, and that's why like recently I've just given up coffee. You yeah. know, I, I discovered, you know, which was the, it wasn't the hardest battle as uh, um, alcohol, um, yeah. but you know, it's relative. But yeah, for me, it's like coffee. And uh, once anything has got control of you, whether it's mm. finances, relationships, drink, whatever, anything external has got control of you. Mm. You're not on the driving seat. Mm you're a slave mm. you know what i mean and, and and honestly i hate anything having control over me mm. uh, i hate it you know finances have the control of me all pretty much all my life mm. um, all the way through my, my military uh, career everything you know relationships alcohol drugs everything you know that once they're in control you are you are the slave you are mm. the bitch mm. and you know until you escape that you know and i saw i can remember like when I first stopped drinking, someone, I'll never forget this. There was a woman, I won't mention her name, but she said on one of my Instagram feeds, you know, I put about stop drinking. I feel like, you know, and she put on there, you only live once. Oh my God. And I answered exactly. 
Yeah, that's one word. Exactly, because I'll tell you what, if you're living the majority of your, your life in a numb, bloody, void state, yeah. Yeah, then yeah. is that You're not life? living. You're not living, you're not living at all. And just like, I can remember when I stopped drinking, it was like, it was the first Friday night, and I was like, holy sh- what what do I do? Yeah. You know, I've got my, t- my phone's going off and stuff, and I'm like, what? I'm like, that's happened to my fingers. Yeah, yeah, what? yeah. It didn't take long. It was only a few uh, weeks. I was starting, you adapt. Yeah, you adapt. And then before I knew it, I was going, how, how did I have time to drink? Yeah. You know, and that was the time when I was starting my business as well. When I was doing stuff, I can remember working on a Friday night because the stuff needed to be doing for the business. And I knew that if I was drinking, the drinking would have taken priority. And that would be an absolute no, that I would yeah. not, you know, I would yeah. not put the drink aside to go and work. But for once, uh, like Friday night, I was putting the time in working i was like you would have never ever done this yeah you know and, and that and i thought to myself as well you know I was, when all this opportunity came around with the tv stuff i said to myself right because almost time over a rack earns a fortune you know pissed it up the wall on you know marriage i've got all kinds of stuff and it all it all fell apart and when i got the opportunity with tv i'd said to me if you can't honor yourself to like cut away the drink for even if it's just for a while to make the best of this opportunity, you are a fucking loser. Yeah. Um, you know, and I thought the horror of thinking in five years' time, looking back and thinking, fucking hell, all I've been doing is drinking. And, you know, I, would, I, would, I couldn't live with myself if I'd have abused that opportunity. So, you know, it's, for me, it's like, you know, a lot of people that go, you know, oh, I haven't got a problem. Well, you know you've got a problem when you, you can't go out unless you have a drink. Mm. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't go out unless I had a drink, you know, and, and people, you know, people are just fooling themselves and they're, they're, they're not, you know, if they just give themselves like you had the three months, you know, if they give themselves that, that time mm. just to understand, then they'd, they'd be able to compare which one do I want? I, I'd say treat it as an experiment, whether yeah. it's 30 days or hundreds ideal. And then you can see where your life is then. And, and to be honest, mate, when I, I agreed to the three months. It took me two weeks to say I'm done. Yeah, really? Yeah, absolutely. I didn't, I didn't want it after that. And do you know what's ironic as well? I did all this irony, mate. Mm-hmm. I did this uh, London to Paris bike ride six months after giving up. And it was uh, the charity for child slavery. And wow. we raised 38,000 quid. Uh, and there was a story we heard about a boy that was lured onto a fishing boat when he was eight to go around the harbour. Mm. And they put me in the bottom of the boat. And when he was rescued, he was 17. He was just on this boat for all that time. What country was that? You know? Uh, I think it was Thailand or something, somewhere. Mate, honestly, the lot of work we did out there, I didn't even realise that had happened. But, you know, with the skin trade out there, you know, there's brothels, sweatshops, and there's fishing villages. And kids would actually be put onto the feet. Everyone thinks it's like, you know, kids going, being abused is like sex holidays. And it's the Westerners. It's not. It's a massive cultural issue. And, you know, a lot of, you know, we were told about that, about kids being put onto fishing boats. And a lot of them don't come off. You know, they, they yeah. fish and, and throw them over the side. I know. I know. It's, it's awful. Yeah. That's another story, mate. I'm aware of the time. So where are you now, mate? How many years have you been sober now? Well, that's, that's a, another important point. We went to Chile. I think it was the third year. Or was it the fourth year? Fourth year, SASU, there's wins. And uh, during a sort of a break between filming, I started drinking again. Wow. And I started drinking because I was like convinced I was missing out. 
you know, and I'm, I'm sort of questioning myself. I thought, look, I've learned to control this now. I'll, I'll just be able to have a couple of drinks and then, you know, I'm on top of it. Anyway, I got out there and I drank for the first time in, in Chile. That first night I drank, honestly, I was, I was a maniac, an absolute maniac. Next morning, woke up, it's like your first time ever drinking. I think I'd been not drinking for two and a half years at that point. And uh, I drank then. And then, um, and then that started, I was back on the drink then for eight months. Mm. You know, and then I can remember we then went off to do a recce for SAS Who Dares Wins. I went with the lads again up to Scotland and we drank every day. And me more than most, you know what I mean? Me, me more than the other lads. And then I can remember my wife, she wasn't my wife then, but she then went away to the Netherlands. She was away that weekend when I came back. I can remember like me and Billy were at the airport having a few drinks before we even got on the plane. You know, I came back and I can remember getting up on a Saturday morning uh, after coming back from that recce up in Scotland for, for SAS. And I came downstairs, my dog was there, Murphy. And I went, you know, I said, ah, oh, you know what? I've had a hard week. I'm going to, I'm going to put the TV on. I'm going to put my feet up, get a cup of tea. And I sat down, put the TV on, my dog's there. And all of a sudden I went, what the fuck are you doing? Hmm. And I've said, I went, if you hadn't been drinking, you'd be out now on the hills. You'd be out with your dog. You'd be doing it. And I went, right, that is it. Hmm. That is it. You're kidding yourself. If you think you can control it. And it's, it changes your life in a negative way. And I, I, it doesn't help me to be the person that I need to be to feel to, to feel grounded, you know, which is that person that is out on the hills doing a lot of stuff, doing mm. something different every day. So that was it for me after that. I, you know, and I, I will never, I can safely say I'll never go back to drink, but sometimes it takes you to dip your foot back in to realize why you actually gave up in the first place, you know, to make sure it's not just about ego and it's the fact that you're proving to everyone else that I can do it and blah, blah, blah. You know, it had, it had to be more than about proving something to someone else. It has to be, it's not external. This is not external. It has to be all internal. You know, it's not, it's about no one else but you. So yeah, I, I just want to say before, just, you know, that anyone out there just thinking, all I'd say is, you know, if you do drink, okay, have a good Christmas, but make a, just, just experiment. Just do that three, just do that 30 days initially. Mm. But I, uh, I've been um, putting a message out there that you don't have to wait till dry January to do it because otherwise you're thinking, do you know what? I can go hell for leather in silly season, December and that. And then because I've got 30 days off, there's never a, a right or wrong time. Do you know what I mean? And and I encourage people, if they feel it's right at the moment, just do it. Take that. Look at it as an experiment. Journal, write it down how you're feeling every day. Notice how you're changing. You look in the mirror and after a week, you're looking fresher. You know, what you say about clarity is so important because, mm-hmm. I mean, this morning I was up at five, right? I've done so much before eight, nine o'clock. Yeah. And I was never one for laying in bed like, oh, my head and that. But mm-hmm. I, I was, you know, you spend the whole day thinking about alcohol. In yeah. the morning, it's all like, I'm never drinking again. Get to lunch, so I might have one tonight. And then you get pissed again. And then it's it starts again. Battle. It's a constant battle. It's that constant stress. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? It's, it's, I'm the same, David. I, I, I never used to go up at five o'clock in the morning. I, I do so much now. Yeah. And then, uh, then not, um, you know, and then I used to like get up at normal, say eight-ish or whatever. Then I'd be drinking in the evening or whatever. Now I'm getting so much hours. I'm not wasting my time with sitting there at a bar or something drinking or watching crap tv yeah my time is so 
important. Yeah, and that's like better hurry up and get to the finish this wonderful one podcast. Thing I, yeah, one thing I'll say though, what you just said, Dave, because your change any kind of change, any positive change starts with a decision, not a date. Yeah. That's right. Well, with what you just said, mate. So, you know, and that's the thing. If if it's a decision, not a date, because the more you put it into an, a date, the less chance you've got of doing it. Everyone that goes, oh well, I'll start on Monday. Same yeah, it's a countdown. Yeah. And then you talk with the thing is of alcohol, it, it's got that addictive voice, right? So you talk yourself out of it. So what you do, you get absolutely hammered all weekend. I also like to say to people, right, dry January, you get off your head New Year's Eve, wake up Monday morning or whenever it is, New Year's Day. By lunchtime, your body's screaming out for alcohol. You make it 20, 30 times harder. Yeah. Just, yeah. Just take it easy. There's no set time. Trust your gut. Trust how you feel in the morning and you wake up and you think, I'm done. I've had enough of this. I'm that thing. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Trust your gut. Yeah. And go from there, you know, and and it, that's how I did it. And it sounds like that's how you did it as well. And you haven't looked back in the background there. You've got short term discomfort for long term gain. That's exactly what it was, you know. 40 years of drinking, it took a few months for me to sit in that comfort, discomfort zone, learn some tools, learn some new mindsets like you did in your cottage and whatever, get to know yourself intimately in a way. And I don't mean that in a rude way, yeah. you know, and, and it's like now I just know what I want out of life. You know, yeah. and I know what I don't want as well. A hundred percent, mate. It's, 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 it's absolutely, you know, you actually get value out of life and, you know, we, you know, you've got to start looking at life. You're not a guest, you're the host. Yeah. Start behaving like Take that. control. Yeah. Your life. And mate, I could talk to you. Forever. Yeah. Likewise, mate. Likewise. So I'm really grateful to you joining me today. Yeah. And, and Dave, thanks very much for everything you're doing, mate. You know, at the end of the day, what value have we got in trying to convince other people to do this? We don't get paid per person. No. Because we understand that, you know, there is a better life out there, especially for people that really do have a problem with it. Yeah. Yeah. And do you know what I did? I was drinking a litre of vodka a night and I, I want people to feel what I feel every day. And that's why I do it. Yeah. I want people to change their relation. I mean, this has a knock on effect. Yeah. With families, kids, yeah. everything, you know. So, mate, thank you so, so much. And when I'm near your way, I'm going to pop in for a nice cup of tea and we can climb those hills. Yeah, let's do it. Let's get a date in the diary, mate. Yeah, and it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on here today, Dave, and, and keep doing what you're doing, mate. It's amazing. Thank you so much, Ollie. Take care, mate. Right, cheers, buddy. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can now download my app, Sober Dave, on the Apple and Google Play Store. And on there, you will find lots of tutorials, tips and support to help you stop drinking. And there are also meditation audios, food plans and chat forums. You can also find me on Instagram at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. But until then... Thanks for listening and have a great week.